About a year ago, I was uh, doing some shopping for a portable piano, the one that's sitting over there, which is a pretty decent piano. And I went into the music store, and I started kind of playing around on them and trying them out. And uh, I'm not very proficient or anything, but I can, I can play the piano by ear. So I was kind of playing around. And then there's this big, grand piano in there, you know. And so I went over, ooh, just play a little bit. And you just sound better. When you're playing on the grand piano, you just, everything sounds, when you play the, those low notes, blah, it's just so, you feel it reverberating in your chest, it's fantastic. Grand pianos are incredible uh, instruments, and I was doing some research to try and figure out how many, how many parts, how many moving parts are going on in here, and the websites I was looking at, there were some discrepancies, so I'm just going to be safe, and I'm going to say that there are thousands of parts in a grand piano, thousands. And when a key gets touched, it starts a chain reaction of somewhere north of 50 parts. You touch a key and there's 50 movements that, 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 that come out of that. They're incredible. But even as incredible and grand as these grand panels are, if you leave it alone, left to itself, it will go out of tune. Because the changes in humidity up and down, just, I mean, just being in an environment, it goes out of tune. And you know, you and I are amazing. Psalm 139, 14 says, like, you know, we are like God's grand piano. We are made in a wonderful and an amazing way. And you know, when, when life touches us, it starts a reverberation of a chain reaction. And we respond in, in 50 different ways. And left to ourselves, left on our own, left in the environment of this world that we live in that has been tainted by sin, we go out of tune. Our hearts go out of tune. And our hearts are constantly in need of being retuned. This morning, today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. And that's probably going to sound familiar to some of you who maybe were paying attention or thinking, now that's the text Paul used last week. It, did he have a busy week and is he lazy? Uh, so yes and no. Yes, I did have a busy week, but no, I'm not being lazy. I'm going to go back. I'm going to use the same text we used last week because as I was in prayer and as I was thinking about this week, it, uh, I realized that the hope and the grace that we need in our suffering is, is just day in and day out. And as I go back to the text that I preached on last week, I realize we can, we can mine this even deeper to see the goodness and the grace of Christ. And in the 18th century, there was a, there was a theologian named Charles Hodge, and uh, he articulated my reasoning for doing this today in a really great way. And he said this, he said, The gospel is so simple a child can understand it, yet it's so endlessly rich that the wisest theologians will never exhaust its depths. So let's go back to this text that we looked at seven days ago. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. So our hearts are constantly in need of retuning because we're like these grand pianos that over time get out of tune. And so God's given us this gracious command every seven days to come to rest and allow the Holy Spirit to retune us. Peter, the fisherman turned apostle, is writing this letter. He is a guy who's had lots of failure and lots of suffering, and it's written down for us to glean from. And I'm glad there's not a book in the Bible, you know, called, you know, First Paul Dunk, where all my failure and miserable, you know, shortcomings are there for everybody else to learn. But we have this from Peter, and he wrote this. The fisherman turned apostle, the guy that denied Christ three times, and then 50 days later, God used to preach the gospel, and 3,000 people came to, save, uh, came to saving faith in Christ. He writes this, and he witnessed all kinds of suffering. Peter witnessed the suffering, then Peter participated in, in suffering. Peter understands that life is a paradox of joy and pain, just like our lives are a paradox of joy and pain. And Peter wrote this to this dispersion, these scattered Christians all over the place, suffering and going through hardships. He wrote it in the year 62-63 AD, which if you do your history and you do a, do a timeline, you're going to realize Peter was writing this letter when there was a guy named Nero, who was the emperor of Rome. Nero, if you've ever read about Nero, not a great guy. Okay, he used to do crazy things. Every year he would have a festival and he would roll, ride around on his chariot on the lawn, uh, you know, of, uh, in front of the, the emperor's palace and they would have Christians burning like lawn ornaments on the, I mean, this is just part of Roman antiquity. I mean, he used to do this. I mean, the Romans thought he was crazy. The Romans didn't think that was great. I mean, a lot of the Romans were like, this guy is nuts. So Peter is writing this letter to these Christians who are afraid for their lives and going, really going through it and suffering, uh, kind of under this, this kind of backdrop of hardship. And so Peter gets it. He, Peter gets how there's a paradox of, of joy and pain in our life because he himself was martyred in Rome, you know, later. He was crucified upside down on a Roman cross. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Christ. Turn me around the other way, and they did. And so Peter is a guy writing to a suffering church who... who uh, like us, has got to deal with this. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that God's grace anchors us. It anchors us to immovable hope in our suffering, Christ alone. See, without the gospel, we live our lives with a fragile hope. We live our lives fingers crossed. Without the, the hope of the gospel, which is what Peter's trying to do to encourage this church, you're, you're, you're forced to live your life hoping things work out. You're forced to live your life hoping that that, circ that circumstance you're in that situation you're facing, whatever you've got going on in your life on Monday, the stresses, the pressures, then your hope and your joy is, is pinned to that working out. And to the degree that it works out, you have joy. And to the degree that it doesn't, you have pain. But Peter is offering something deeper here, an anchor. An anchor of hope in the midst of suffering. 
right? And so he's giving us something beautiful here. So the question this morning we're going to ask this text is, how does God's grace actually do that? How does God's grace anchor us to a movable hope in our suffering? So I'm going to pull a few things out of this text from Peter. The first thing is that God's grace rescues us from nearsightedness. The second thing is that God's grace, it actually enables praise that brings peace. And then the third thing is that God's grace reminds us that the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of yours. The pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of yours. So this is what we're going to look at from this text. So here's the first thing. How does God's grace, you know, rescue us from nearsightedness? The thing with suffering is when we're going through suffering, it it automatically makes us nearsighted. We become myopic. Um, The definition of nearsightedness is that your, your eyes actually focus light on this particular point on your retina, so that you, can, you can't see anything unless it's right in front of you. That's what suffering does to us. Suffering makes us nearsighted. We only see the suffering, the frustration, the pain, the anger, the hurt. The t- uh, we, can't, we can't see uh, anything else. And grace rescues us out of that. These, these Christians Peter was writing to, they're just like us. They had economic hardship, big time. They had relational tensions and stress, just like we do. Uh, they had political stress, because as I mentioned, they're under Nero, so things were absolutely not good. They had huge political stress. Um, but, and then, but they had this massive social rejection, which isn't unlike the social rejection that you could experience today. If you, if you stood up on your university campus, students, and uh, in, an, in, in a lecture, let's say during the lecture they said we're going to take some questions, and you stood up in that lecture hall with 500 students at the University of Waterloo, and let's say you said, yes, I've got a question. Um, so I'm a theist, I believe in, Christ, uh, in the Christian faith, I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and I just have this question. You would immediately have massive, be dealing with massive social rejection and implications of that. So this, first, this church here gets, gets what, what, what we're also suffering with. The difference is, of course, in the ancient world, by ancient standards, they didn't have, you know, Cappadocian health care. You know, it wasn't like, go down and get your Bithynian health card. Okay, so their suffering was stratospheric because not only did they deal with the kinds of things that we deal with, they also had the grueling life of the ancient world. So Peter is writing all this, and he's trying to help them get out of the nearsightedness. How do I get out of the nearsightedness of what I'm going through and actually have joy? And grace allows, it, uh, allows us to do that. And so, if you, again, you think about that piano. Left to itself, the piano goes out of tune. Left to ourselves, the Christian heart goes out of tune because the suffering of life causes it to get out of tune. And so Christ's gospel, the perfect life for you, the sin that he took from you and atoned for you, and the death on the cross for you, and the resurrection in that empty tomb for you that gives you the assurance that your life is not ending in darkness and death, it's actually ending in life and light. That is the grace, that is the gospel, but what are the implications of that gospel? And what Peter is doing with the suffering church is he's saying, if you don't sit and rest in the implications of what that means, you're going to be nearsighted. You're just going to say, yeah, Jesus, yeah, the cross, I hear the gospel and I hear the phrase Christ alone every Sunday, who cares about that? I'm dealing with this! And we're back into that myopic place of hurt and pain and stress and anxiety and suffering. And so Peter is inviting them to rest in the implications. That's why in verse 6 he says, in this you rejoice. He's helping them. He's calling them to worship. In verse 1 and 2, that's why Peter starts. He's he's not just doing a, a, a fancy greeting. The beginnings of these letters, there's this Trinitarian tidal wave. 
of grace. He wants them to remember. The Father foreknew something. In the beginning, he planned great life for you without suffering forever. That's the plan. We messed that up. So now the Son in great redemption through his blood has made it possible to get you back on that trajectory, which, church, you are now on through tears, but we're on it. And now the Holy Spirit is now sanctifying you, meaning you're sanctified past tense, legally, holy. Christ is your holiness. And now you are progressively and actually being made holy as you learn to hate your sin and love your Savior. So there's this Trinitarian force of grace coming where Peter's like, guys, 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 time out. We, if, if we leave the piano to strings of our hearts alone, we are going to be out of tune. And we're basically going to develop this idea like, yeah, 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 Jesus and the gospel got that. But what about this? This is the thing. And that's where our hearts are going to go. And so we need that recalibration, that reorientation. That's why Peter's doing this. That's why he's saying this. That's why at the end of his greeting, he, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. He, this is not just a kind greeting. He's not just saying, Hey, Cappadocia, uh, say hi to your mother for me. Okay, he's not just like, oh, grace and peace, and that sounds nice. When he says grace and peace be multiplied to you, he's saying there's something available, spiritually available. His prayer is grace and rest and peace actually be actually multiplied in your actual heart that's actually in pain. And he's offering this. And he's inviting the church to be recalibrated and, and rest in it. And that, so that's why he said that. And so Peter is inviting this church out of this curved inward posture into an upward posture. And so that's why he, he grabs the tuning fork of grace to recalibrate, uh, to recalibrate their hearts. And so let's move on and look at this, the, the grace that enables praise. So he's trying to extract them out of the nearsightedness of suffering. And how does he do that? He's inviting them actually into praise. Praise that actually can bring peace. And it's possible to believe in Christ. I've done this. You've done this. It's possible to believe in Christ and have no peace whatsoever. Like it's possible that when you're anxious and freaked out and suffering and stressed out, that if somebody was to stop you in the middle of that and say, can I ask you a question? You know, do you still believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the atonement of your sin? You would say, yes! Now shut up! Because I'm really angry and hurting and stressed and anxious and whatever, right? Like, that's what we, it's possible to actually truly believe in, in the gospel and yet not enjoy the implications of the gospel. So that's what Peter's up to. He's like, I have to get this thing that's actual... And I've got to get it to a place where it's experiential. So notice what I'm doing here. I'm being very specific. Experience isn't first, right? Our faith is not experience. Our, our, our faith is actual, right? But what, that actual, what the actuality of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ does is it creates experience whereby we are enjoying the grace that we claim we believe in. And we're actually finding rest in the grace that we claim we believe in. But I've, I've done it, and you've done it. Where we believe the facts, we're like, check, 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 we've ticked off all the intellectual boxes, but our day-to-day -day experience is anxiety and stress. Essentially, we're living like everybody else who isn't got the throne of grace to go and hang on to. I've been there, you've been there, right? 
So Peter invites them into this praise. How, how does he do that? You, you see in verse 8 there, he says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. You believe in him. You rejoice with joy. Praise of God, this recalibration, this retuning, that is the pathway to peace. God in his great grace has given us a pathway to peace by recalibrating our hearts and retuning our hearts by us resting and remembering the gospel and then, and then the hope of the gospel. Take your order of worship for a second. You've got the bulletins there. I want you to open those up. I want to show this to you, the gift of grace that God has given. Now, every church does liturgy in a different way. So I am not going to make an argument right now that this is the right way to do it. I'm not going to make that argument. I'm, what, the argument I'm going to make is what God has given for us to enjoy through the scripture Churches apply in different ways because praise is the pathway to peace. I just want you to notice the headings, okay? God calls, God cleanses, God communes, God commissions. As we come to him in praise, as we confess our sin, as Christ is preached and he fills our ears, and then we go to the Lord's table and he fills our mouth, and then we go out and we're sent. Who's doing all the action on a Sunday morning? Who is doing the action and who is on the receiving end of the action? Sunday morning is not about you coming and doing anything for God. You're not coming here and serving Him. You're coming here and you are on the receiving end of gracious action. When God in the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and Jesus Christ, Hebrews 4, says He is the Lord of rest, think about what God is up to. He's saying, my children are not good at resting. They're not going to rest. They will never rest. They need rest. And the only way for them to get the rest they need is for me to command it. So I am commanding rest. God called you. God cleanses you. God is now communing with you through the stammering lips of the sinful preacher, saved by grace. Christ preached God is communing with you. You come to the Lord's table, you eat the ordinary bread, you drink the ordinary cup, and God, by the power of his spirit, gets out the tuning fork of grace. And he begins to recalibrate your heart. Though you're in suffering, though nothing on Monday morning that you have to deal with has changed, you are changing. You are changed. Your heart has changed. You're coming into rest. You're coming into his peace. You're able to rejoice. This is the gift. And so as churches, all of us have different liturgies and do it different way, but that's the goal. And if the liturgy isn't serving that, the people leave knowing that their sins are absolved and God has done all the action and you are on the receiving end of the action and now you're being propelled as you go at the door by his gracious action, then we, should, then we have to start over. And so this is, what, this is what Peter is calling them to. Consider the Lord's Prayer for a second. We pray the Lord's Prayer every week. I did a seven-week, you know, we, we went seven weeks line by line through the Lord's Prayer. Two-thirds of the prayer is, oh God, would you retune my heart? Would you, would you, would you recalibrate me? This is what it's given. This is, the, this is the gift, the great gift. But of course, the, it begs the question, but Paul, or but Peter, if I'm suffering... If day-to-day -day this thing isn't changing, and it doesn't seem to have any signs that it's going to change, then how, what am I rejoicing about exactly? Notice what Peter does, and notice the flow of the passage and what Peter says. Peter doesn't say, dear suffering church of the diaspora, count your blessings, guys. Count them one by one. 
Think of three things right now in your life that you can thank God for. Um, you know, dear, you know, suffering church, scattering church, hiding from Nero. Think about it, guys. I mean, at least you've got a, at least you've got a, a, a house and three goats. I mean, that's pretty good, right? Things could be worse. Some people only have one goat, right? Peter doesn't do, Peter doesn't do any of these things. Why doesn't Peter do that? He doesn't do that because, like I said, he takes out the tuning fork of grace and he takes them back to the implications of the cross. Why? Because when our hearts are out of tune, a better circumstance, we think that's our savior. If this circumstance could just, that's my savior. So Peter has no conversations about their circumstances improving. He doesn't say, I know you're suffering now, but good things are around the corner. He does not do that. What he does is he takes them back to the cross. He takes them back to Christ. He says, guys, praise and peace, you know, peace and, and, and rest don't come from thinking about what is. They come from thinking about what was and what's coming. We have to be extracted out of our nearsightedness. We have to get extracted out of the myopic idea of like, okay, here's where things are at, but maybe tomorrow they'll shift from there. Listen, our hope and our rest is when, so that the gospel begins to do that retuning spiritual work in our hearts so that the way that we deal with the day-to-day -day suffering, even, even through tears, there's joy. Because this isn't actually my hope, my ultimate hope. And so that's, what, uh, that's, the, that's the direction that Peter takes them. Because of, that's why he uses the words, um, your inheritance is imperishable. It's kept for you, right? This, this thing is happening. And that's why he uses those words. Because he's saying, you've got to rest in the fact that everything that Christ did was perfect. I mean, it was perfect in every way. It's not pending, it's perfect. And so when we rest in the implications of Christ's perfection, here's what we remember. Everything that's good about your life that you actually enjoy, the small things, the little things, the, the glorious things. Like I said last week, Christian faith is not Gnosticism. It's not escape the material and only care about the spiritual. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christian faith. God made the material. He made you aesthetic beings. That's why you like sunsets. That's why you like music. That's why you like the things you like. That's why you appreciate art and architecture and fashion and sports and whatever things you're into in this room. Those things come out of us because it's an expression of a creator God who made creation that he's restoring. So resting in the implications of the gospel means everything that's good about your life is on a trajectory of being perfectly restored. Everything that is sorrowful about your life is on a, on a trajectory of being removed. That's where we're going. That's the gospel promise. That's Revelation 21. That's the spoiler alert end of where, this, where Christian faith is headed. And so Peter goes, the only way to make sense of your suffering is to, get, is to go that big. Right? Because when you're dealing with the life and death stuff, like we do in this church, like they do in all churches, when you're dealing with the life and death stuff, you've got to have a gospel that can speak to the life and death stuff, or we don't have a gospel. And Peter takes that church and goes, hold on now. This is where you have to think. This is where your hearts have to go. To enjoy that praise and to enjoy that and, and to enjoy that peace. You know, we suffer because we live in this world where man rules as incapable, you know, little gods, and so there's all of this suffering all around us. And you think about it, the very first commandment, if you ask most people, what's the first commandment in the entire Bible, what's the first thing God commanded? A lot of people will say, Don't touch the tree. That's the second commandment. 
The first commandment was be fruitful, multiply, enjoy everything. That's the first commandment. That's what God was up to. And then he says, and the way to actually enjoy everything, the way to be fully human, is to remember that I'm God. So we're going to do this thing to help you remember that I'm God, you're not God, and you can actually enjoy and flourish and, and, and use your faculties and create civilization and do amazing things, Adam and Eve. So here's what we're going to do. See that tree? Don't touch it. And by not touching that tree, it's going to remind you I get to have absolutely everything in this entire world to enjoy except that tree because not touching that tree reminds me that I'm not God. And what did our parents do? They believed the lie that they could be God. They desired to be God. And so then, like the, the, the poet once wrote, they reached up, you know, the fall was actually a reaching up. So they reached up to be God, and they fell like a little cog falling off of a gear into a great machine, and they caused the whole machine to be out of sync, and it's been out of sync since. And so that's why, we deal, that's why the world is suffering. That's why we die. That's why there's disease and death and sickness and poverty and, 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 and oppression and every other socioeconomic problem in the world. It's a result, it's a result of our sin. And so then what God did was he again moved in grace and he saved uh, his people out of Egypt and certain death. And then he gave them the law again. And he said, I saved you in grace. And now I'm going to give you 10 commandments to organize human suffer, uh, flourishing. I'm going to give you 10 commandments. I saved you in grace. You didn't do anything to deserve that. Now I'm going to give you my law so that you can enjoy the freedom in the land that I just gave you. And could they do it? No. Could they keep the law? No. Can you and I keep the law? No. Not as it's meant to be kept. That's why we needed Jesus Christ. If there's anybody in here who says, well, Paul, I disagree. I can keep the law. Well, then you should change your name to Jesus Christ because that's the standard. Not hitting it once a day or once a week or, hey, I had a good couple days. Nope. Perpetually living there. Oh, and P.S., there's this thing called your past. And you don't get to wipe that out and pretend like that didn't happen. Right? So the announcement that we're keeping God's law is an announcement of, of delusion. So we needed Jesus Christ. That's why we confess our sin every Sunday. And that's why we're on this trajectory of loving him. But then what, what, what do we do as moderns? We say, you know, I'm listening to Paul and I'm listening to what he's saying and I'm thinking to myself... The Bible's so old, you know? I mean, do we really need these laws? The Ten Commandments, really? It's 2016. You're going to stand up there and talk to me about the Ten Commandments in 2016? Right? Have no other gods before me. Don't bow down before, you know, uh, idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't, you know, want your, your, uh, your neighbor's stuff. Don't bear false witness. Don't murder, don't, uh, or sorry, don't commit adultery. We're, gonna, we're really going gonna to bring that up now? Let's not do that. So we, we haven't. We said, no, we don't agree. And I just did a little bit of research as we were thinking, you know, how are we doing as Canadians by throwing that out? And what I've noticed is we spend $2.7 billion every year on our federal prison system, $10.6 billion on courts, police, uh, the prosecution, legal aid, correction, criminal review, the breakdown of the family and marriage in Canada is, is still pretty rampant. And then we say that we're people of science, but then when science betrays us by telling us that a fertilized egg is a human life, then we're not people of science. So this is, this is how we're doing. By saying, do we really need to just 
love God and worship him and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Is that kind of passe, and we pass that. This is why we live in the suffering that we live in. As G.K. Chesterton once said, he was a philosopher, a poet, and a writer in the 18th century. He was asked one time, what's wrong with the world today? And he famously said, I am. And so we need hope and grace in our suffering. And we need the tuning fork of God's grace. And so every week we come and we gather and we rest. And every day you're invited to rest in it. Let's move on to the final, let's move on to this, uh, the, the final thing. Which is that God, God's grace cures us from our nearsightedness. And then he um, enables us to praise. But then the final thing is that God's grace is a reminder that the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of ours. You see, nothing will help extract you out of your suffering and your anxiety and your stress like remembering that the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of your life. We're in him. Christ's yes, life, yes, there was suffering, but it didn't end in suffering. And yes, in your life and my life, there is suffering. It's not ending in suffering. And we've got to think that big about it. The, the redemptive story arc of all scripture is not evacuation. It's restoration. The redemptive story arc of the entire Bible. Where is history headed? Where is your life headed? What is the meaning of life? All of the existential questions. Where is this whole thing headed? Not evacuation. Restoration. God is not conceding anything. He's restoring everything and you're his child. This is the gospel hope. This is the hope of the gospel. And so the Christian hope of the gospel and faith is not simply, um, well, I guess we'll just hang on until heaven, like I said last Sunday. No, that's not it. It's that knowing that transforms everything today. I'll give you this example. Let's say that a father dies, and he's got two children there, and they're left their inheritance, and the lawyer gives them the envelopes. And the one kid takes the envelope of his inheritance and he puts it in his pocket. And he doesn't look at it. The other kid takes the envelope and he opens it up. And he is amazed at the number that he sees. His mind is blown. And they both get in a car and they start driving to the lawyer's office where they're supposed to pick up the checks for their inheritance. And on the way the car breaks down. So now they have to walk. And so they're walking together but the weather conditions are extreme. And as they're walking through these extreme weather conditions... The son who as remembers his inheritance is singing in the rain. And the son that crammed it in his pocket and did, has no clue about his inheritance and think about his inheritance is cursing the entire time. And then as the rain is happening, they both get sick. And of course, the one kid who remembers the inheritance and has it firmly in his mind is puking and snotting, but he's still singing because he's on, he's on his way to pick up his inheritance. The other kid is just cursing even more because he has no clue about his inheritance. All he knows is the suffering that he's going through. And then as they're singing, or the one kid's singing and the other kid's cursing and they're both puking and they're both snotting, they come along a guy who's on the street and he's begging and he needs money. And the one guy's like, go get a job, guy. Holy smokes, you're like 16 years old and you're, you're 16, you've got your whole life in front of you and you want my change out of my cup holder that I'm going to use for coffee and, you, and you're, on, you're on the exit ramp, you're going to use this money, you're going to go into the mall and you're going to buy something. But the other kid re reaches in his pocket and he gives him whatever money he's got because he's going to get his inheritance. 
He's like, bro, I don't know what, why your life has hit rock bottom, but you're only 16 and you're begging for money, but obviously you need it more than I do, and he gives him the money. And then they come along and they see some more people and there's somebody, cry, there's somebody crying in the corner. And the kid who's stared at his inheritance, he goes over at the little, and he takes some time and to sit down and ask them what's wrong and why are you crying and what's going on. And the other guy is just like, holy smokes, you think you got problems? Look at the problems that I got. I got enough drama, thank you. I don't need to import your drama into my life. I'm not going to stop and ask you how your day is going. I don't need that. You don't know what I'm going through. And nearsighted myopicness of suffering. Right? You see, Peter is getting the suffering church to look at their inheritance. Look at it. Every Sunday as we come in here, through the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the grace of Christ is like a Trinitarian tidal wave coming at you saying, Church, look at it. Look at it. Let it retune your heart. Let it retune our hearts. So that there is an anchor of grace in our suffering. That this thing working out is not my ultimate hope. I'm not living with the nearsightedness of being all myopic and dialed into this. It may change, and if it does, I'll praise God's name. But if it doesn't change, I'm going to praise him anyways. Because this isn't the story. Christ's trajectory is mine. The pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of mine. And the, in the end is, is complete restoration. And so we doubt that God is good when our perception of him is formed by our pain on a canvas of disappointment and suffering. But if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how much God loves you, you look at the cross. And if you're wondering what the outcome of your suffering is going to be, you look at the empty tomb. God's grace anchors us in our immovable hope and suffering. Christ alone. Let's pray.